Good morning, everybody. Pastor Gary here. Thank you for joining us this morning. And if you're a first-time visitor, we are honored to have you with us. We are looking forward towards meeting together as a congregation in the near future. We are still working through the details as how best to do that, as well as how we plan to continue our online presence for those who are not in the area or are unable to attend. I do need a favor from each one of you, though. I need to know what your plans are concerning Living Way Church so that we can properly plan. <clears throat> However you plan on attending, we would love to hear from you, whether in person or online. That way we can plan our online stream as well. There is a link in the description below if you're on Facebook or YouTube entitled My Plans. If you're watching on our website, you can scroll down to the card below entitled you guessed it, my plans, and fill out the form at the end of the sermon. Don't worry, I'll remind us all again at the end of the sermon. So, this morning we are continuing our series through the book of Esther. I had not planned on preaching this book this year. In fact, I had considered it a possibility for next year, but not this year. And then several weeks ago, I felt this push by God to turn away from our plans and to look at the book of Esther. And it is so amazing to see how God brought us to this book for this time period, right here, right now. We're oftentimes amazed when things like this occur. But the truth is, we shouldn't be. This is simply the mysterious, miraculous ways of our omniscient, omnipotent God. One of the difficulties for all Christians to remember as we look at the book of Esther is that we live in a world that is fallen. We have a tendency to forget this truth, even in our own lives. When we say that, what we are referring to is humanity's fall into sin when Adam was disobedient to God the Father, when he failed to protect Eve from the lies and traps of Satan. And then in Genesis 3, humanity, because of our inherent nature to sin, was cursed by God in what we call the fall. And through this historical moment in time, the earth and humanity were changed forever. As a result, our very nature is to sin. It is not towards righteousness. Even still, when we come in contact with the unrighteous acts of this world, we have a tendency to respond with shock. This is the reality of mankind. We are not born good. We are born bad. No parent trains their children to do the wrong things, but our children do. Instead, parents spend a lifetime trying to, for all they are worth, to train their children to make good, righteous, and wise decisions. How should we respond when we are faced with unrighteous deeds in the midst of an unrighteous world? Today we're going to look very we're going to very directly answer that question. So if you have been uncertain how to respond to racism and persecution and violence or whatever sinful actions you have seen in our world, our passage Esther 4 today is going to remove any uncertainty that may exist. Let's recap recap first though Real quick, our first three chapters so we understand how we have gotten to this point in our story. First, in Esther chapter 1, we are introduced to King Xerxes. 
Historically, we know that Xerxes had a tendency to be very violent towards those around him who did not do as he expected them to do. And in the first chapter, Xerxes is working to gain the approval of the leaders under him who rule the Persian Empire so that he might be able to go to war against Greece. So he throws this extravagant six-month-long party that culminates in an after-party, so to speak, at which he and his buddies are all drunk, and he wants to parade his beautiful queen before them. However, she refuses such an inappropriate request, and it costs her the crown. As a result, in chapter 2, there's a lottery, and then a competition of sorts, and Esther, our heroine, is crowned queen. Fast forward a few years, and a man named Haman enters our story, and is promoted by Xerxes to rule just under him. Xerxes calls for all those under Haman to bow before him. However, Mordecai, the man who raised Esther, is unwilling to bow, to bow down before Haman. Because Haman was an Amalekite, a descendant of King Agag, and the Amalekites had been lifelong mortal enemies of the Jews. So there was no way Mordecai would bow down to him. As a result, Haman, because of his racism towards the Jews, plotted the death of all the Jews under the power of the Persian Empire. And he's a, he was able to convince King Xerxes that this is a dire situation that needs to be dealt with. <clears throat> a year from now, this group is obviously a clear and present danger to the kingdom. And this brings us to Esther chapter 4. We see Mordecai's response to what had to be have been the worst news he had ever received in his lifetime. He and all of his family and all of his countrymen under Persian rule are going to be slaughtered. How would you respond to such news? Just let that sink in for just a moment. What would you do if you were told that in 11 months you, your family, and those related to you are going to be murdered? What do you do? In the first two verses of chapter 4, we have Mordecai's response. We read, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter. In every province to which the edict had order and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth in ashes. The first response of Mordecai is to mourn the impending loss of life that is yet to come. Fasting along with mourning was the norm for the Jew during this time. When we are faced with great suffering and pain, mourning is the natural response. This is what anyone would do, regardless as to whether they are a follower of God or not. To mourn a loss is natural to humanity. But that next step, which is so important, fasting and prayer, is unnatural. It is the response of a people who have placed their trust in the love of a sovereign, almighty God who works for the good of his people. The story of Joseph and his coat of many colors had happened generations prior to this. But this beloved story would have been passed down and loved and cherished particularly by a people who now find themselves struggling to survive as Jews in exile. 
You see, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery out of hatred towards him. And when they are finally reunited, Joseph's brothers are fearful that he may kill them because he has the power to do so. But Joseph says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And during difficult times, God's people need to reach out to him in fasting and in prayer, knowing that when this world attempts to harm God's people, he will always turn that towards the good of his church. It is this that when Tertullian saw Christians being put to death and the church was continuing to grow, he wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so, knowing that God only wants what is best for us, his church, when persecution comes, and no matter what form it may take, whether it is racism or violence, oppression of some sort, whatever means persecution takes, the church needs to turn towards God in mourning and fasting and in prayer. Mordecai comes to the gate, but no further, not because he himself was not permitted to go any further, but rather because no one was supposed to be in sackcloth and ashes before the king. The king and his court were so insulated from the problems of the world around him that he was not supposed to see those who were mourning right outside his front gate. Our queen, Esther, would have been protected from the worries of the world just as well. But because her attendants knew that Mordecai was her uncle and had raised her as a child, they got word to her that Mordecai was at the gate to the citadel in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Esther's initial response is so like so many of us. We probably would have been no different. When we are disconnected from the pain and suffering of others, how do we respond to their pain and suffering? We read in verse 4 that Esther was in great distress and that she sent Mordecai proper clothes to put on. And so rather than figuring out what is going on, let's just make this thing go away. Let's sweep it under the rug and just not deal with it. Because look, let's be honest, no one really likes to deal with difficult situations. She just wants Mordecai to act normal. But Mordecai refuses. This is serious. He is not willing to just let this go. He and his relatives' lives are on the line here. He must make a stand and do what is right. But who is Mordecai truly appealing to by sitting at the gates to the citadel? Is it God? We're not told what Mordecai was thinking, but we do know that the Jews in exile are fasting and praying as well. So we know that some at least are appealing to God on behalf of the nation of Israel. Esther is determined to fix whatever is wrong in the world for Mordecai. And so she sends one of her attendants and orders him <clears throat> to find out what is troubling Mordecai and why. Mordecai tells Hathak, who's the attendant, everything that has happened to him and even the exact amount of money that Haman was willing to pay for the destruction of the Jews. He also gives to Hathak a copy of the edict that put into law the destruction of the Jews. He then asked Hathak to explain it to Esther and to ask her to go before the king and to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Esther now knows everything that may happen. In fact, she has just read an edict 
that calls for the death of the man who raised her and her own death. And this is her response. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She tells Mordecai, look, I haven't been with the king for 30 days. He's been seeing somebody else, not me. So I don't know how he will receive me. And it may mean that I am put to death. She is more concerned with the possibility that she may suffer than with the impending doom and destruction of her own people. Wait a second. Esther, if you don't go, you will be put to death based on this edict as well. In the midst of struggle and difficulty and stress, we do not tend to think very straight, though, do we? And for many of us, it causes us to freeze in fear that we might not be received well or perhaps fully understood, and the results of our actions may actually lead to our own persecution. But there are those like Mordecai who say, Does it matter if I suffer, if I live or die? If we don't speak, if we don't take a stand, nothing will change. And change is not an option oftentimes. This is where many in our black community today feel they find themselves. Just like Mordecai, they feel their very well-being is on the line and something must change. And so action of some kind is necessary. The church needs to encourage a biblical response to these injustices. Mordecai responds to Esther's honest concerns, and he says some of what I believe are the most amazing words. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying, Esther, you can remain silent, but just because you're the queen doesn't mean you are beyond Haman's reach and racist violence. He is coming for you and for your family's, your father's family. Esther, the last queen, was easily replaced, and you can easily be the next to be replaced. But know this, the people of God will be delivered, for they are the people of God. And he is a God who has always faithfully delivered his people. And his faithfulness will not fail them now. You yourself may perish, but his people will survive. And so Esther, you need to ask yourself, are you going to take action and possibly be used by God to save his people? Has God placed you here and now for this very time and this very situation? Each of us is given difficult times in our own lives and the lives of others. We need to ask ourselves these same questions. Has God placed you here and now for such a time as this? If so, then what are you going to do? What is Esther to do in the face of such a speech? She responds to Mordecai and says, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. 
I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther responds rightly and accepts the task before her. She is putting her life on the line and she knows it. So she requests that the Jews in Susa dedicate three days to fast and pray for her. She knows that she needs to rally as many people as possible to go before God and intervene on her behalf to ensure that she is successful. And the Jews in Susa all go before the king of kings with absolutely no fear of reprisal. Because without God, there is little hope for her, for her survival. The survival of the nation of Israel has already been guaranteed in Scripture. That is why Mordecai has said that the people, one way or another, will be saved. But she knows that there is no guarantee for her own life. How does the church respond when faced with difficulties? And those difficulties can be personal or corporate for the church or even corporately for our nation. How do we respond? Mordecai, in essence, publicly protested in a peaceful manner. But look at even his public display. It certainly didn't look like some block party that he was putting on, now did it? In fact, it was so somber that it appears that no one wanted to join him. Today, he would not be considered a very successful organizer of public outrage. But that isn't his goal. He isn't doing this to make a spectacle for everyone in the world to see. He is mourning for his people, and the proper response during this time is to put on sackcloth and ashes and to pray and fast. And this is what he does. Recently, we have seen many different reactions to the struggle that our nation faces today. We have seen peaceful sit-ins, and we have seen riots. We have seen politicians speak out and bend a knee in remembrance. We have seen statues torn down and Hollywood actors and actresses tear themselves down and claim to take responsibility. So how do we today, based on the book of Esther and the fact that we live in the United States, respond to injustice and persecution? First and foremost, which is not here in our passage, but rather is found in James chapter 1, verses 2-4, through 4, we're told to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I do not know of any single people group other than the church that has received more persecution than the Jews. And yet to this day, they persevere. Why? Because of the very hand of God. Second, like Mordecai, we must emotionally respond with mourning and is more than appropriate to mourn publicly for those whom we should mourn. The sins of the person are irrelevant. They bear the very image of God. And as image bearers, we should mourn the destruction of that image. If we as the people of God do not feel a tinge of pain at the loss of life, then we need to check our hearts. Because I guarantee you, all life that is lost pains the heart of its creator, and our hearts should beat just as his. We must, as the people of God, be in fasting and prayer for those who are persecuted and oppressed. There were approximately 3,000 people all across this world that Open Borders has verified 
That's only the ones they've been able to verify that were murdered last year due simply to the fact that they love Jesus. We need to mourn when our brothers and sisters all over the world are being put to death because of their faith in Christ. We need to be very careful of the insulated life that we live in here in America. Because if we're not careful, persecution may come and we may not see it coming. Also, we are shown this picture of a reluctant mediator in Esther. She initially tried to completely pass over what was occurring, right? She sent Mordecai clothes with a hope that he would just get over it. Then she simply told him that she wasn't putting her life on the line. But finally Mordecai convinces her that she needs to step up and represent her people before the king in order to save them from certain death. We cannot miss the parallel that exists here. The scriptures tell the story of another mediator. We, just like the people during the time of our story, need a mediator. But why do we need a mediator? Because we have rebelled against the King of Kings, our Creator, the sovereign ruler of the world. And similar to Xerxes, fallen, sinful people cannot simply saunter into the presence of our perfect, righteous God, unannounced and uninvited. God has declared an edict against mankind, and he has declared us worthy of death because of our sin. The edict has been written throughout the scriptures. For instance, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, we read, For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Unlike the edict of Haman and Xerxes, which was written in haste and hatred, this edict has been written in perfect wisdom from before the foundations of the world, and it declares that all of us, because of our sin, deserve the death penalty. Who will go before the king and plead our case? Who will have the ability and power to deliver us from our sin? It is the one true mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only mediator who can stand between God and man. Esther was separated from her people. Jesus, the King of Kings, stepped down from the heavens and took the form of a servant and lived among those whom he rules over. He lived shoulder to shoulder with us in this fallen and sin-sick world. He lived that life with us in perfect obedience to God. And in so doing, he was able to go before the Father, not risking his life, but instead choosing to lay it down. Unlike Esther, there was no possible death, but instead there was certainty of the coming cross. He stood firm and faced the full torment of hell. This burden that he carried as he considered what was to come was so great that as he prayed to the Father, the sweat from his brow came forth as blood. And in agony, he sought some other way when he prayed to the Father, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way in which our sins might be judged and we might be saved. And God the Father, while Jesus was upon the cross, placed our sins upon him. And Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, and he left nothing within the cup. Through Jesus' death, we have received life. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead 
And then he arose into the heavens, where he now stands before God the Father and intercedes on our behalf. And he pleads with the Father and begs for grace and mercy. And he says, Father, sustain this one as they battle cancer. Strengthen this one that they may stand strong for godly biblical convictions before this fallen, sinful world. And we know he is not alone. The book of Revelation said that the throne is surrounded by those glorified saints who have gone before us. These are his people whom he has sustained and brought to himself to live eternally in his presence. Many of them bear scars from deeply profound spiritual battles, and some the scars of martyrdom. But all of them are now triumphant in him as he redeemed them all by the power of his blood. We have this great cloud of witnesses that we look towards who have gone before us as inspiration. And just as those who went before us today, we pray and fast because our mediator, our Jesus, is not now present with us. So long as we await the return of Christ, we will continue to suffer. We will continue to experience the pain of this fallen, sin-sick world. And so we must cry out to God from the midst of our pain. We must cry out in hope, knowing that this fallen world is not the full measure of reality, though. There is a day that we hope for, that we long for as Christians, a day when fasting will be done away with, the day when our Lord and Savior Jesus returns for us, his bride. And when Jesus returns, our fasting will be turned to feasting. Our tears will be turned to joy and our pains will all be healed. In that moment, we will taste his glory and fully experience his grace. This is the hope that we hold fast to when faced with a multitude of sins in the midst of this fallen, sin-sick world. Let us pray. Father God, help us today to turn to you for wisdom and peace in the midst of this fallen, upside-down world in which we find ourselves. Call us to prayer and fasting on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted daily simply because they have chosen to love your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking our place as our mediator before our King. Show us your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your love. Holy Spirit, comfort us in the midst of the pain that we experience daily and fill us with your strength and power that we might overcome. Lord, we thank you for the grace you have shown us and we worship you and you alone as our God and our one true King. Amen. And now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.